top of the inning to you. Welcome to the Irish Baseball Podcast, brought to you by the Irish American Baseball Society. If you love baseball and if you love Ireland, stay tuned for a discussion of all things Irish baseball. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Becker. Later on in today's show, my colleague Jim Ward will have some audio clips from the show The Crack in the Bat on Irish Baseball TV. For those full episodes, head to irishbaseball.org. First, I'll have more of my interview with author Christopher Klein. The first half of my conversation with Klein aired in episode 5 of the Irish Baseball podcast. You can go back and hear that show as well at irishbaseball.org. We discussed his book, When the Irish Invaded Canada, and he is also the author of the book, Strong Boy, The Life and Times of John L. Sullivan, America's First Sports Hero. I wanted to start this portion of the talk by asking about his interest in the Sabre organization, of which he is a member. Well, I mean, I, I'm a history lover. That's what I write about. So in addition to the books that I've written, I have uh, done maybe about 400 articles for the History Channel is where I do a lot of my writing. So I'm a lover of history. And, you know, baseball is my favorite sport and obviously has, I think, the deepest history of any sport you're going to find here in America. So even if you go back to the time of the Civil War in, in the Gilded Age, which is a period that I write about quite often, and baseball is part of the fabric back then as well. So it's really the history that, that drew me into joining up with Sabre because they do a lot of great research there and have a lot of publications that you know, it seems like every month they're coming out with a new publication that might tie into some aspect of history. And I like what they do a lot is, you know, a lot of unknown history that you don't really know that much about. So be it any of the, the Negro Leagues or, you know, they'll do a book just on the, the Federal League that was around for like two years in the 19 teens. So it's sort of that obscure history that, you know, you don't you don't learn when you're a kid or reading the back of baseball cards. Uh, that that kind of history just sort of really drew me into the organization. And your book talks about how Irish Americans weren't 100% ingratiated into the United States yet, about 20 years after the big migration over here. Can you see a similar parallel in baseball and maybe who's starting to make it in baseball as a way of sort of ingratiating themselves into American society. Absolutely, yeah. So I think for that, going back to John L. Sullivan, uh, who is a subject of the biography I wrote about him called Strong Boy. And so John L. Sullivan is born in Boston in 1858. So he's of that real generation that's born in the United States. They haven't lived through the, the great hunger in their homeland. They are not bearing any of those scars. And they are counter to the Irish who invaded Canada, John L. Sullivan's generation, they're viewing themselves as American first, Irish second. So what's the sport to play there if you're fitting into American society and it's baseball. And that was really like, for John L. Sullivan, for many uh, Americans of Irish descent, uh, was the sport that they were drawn into in those decades after the Civil War as a way to connect and assimilate. It, you know, it, that generation that didn't have to go through the migration uh, 
didn't bear those scars of having to leave the country and have friends and family die and 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 live in in exile uh, you know they're they're infused with that American optimism of the age and they're looking to assimilate into the culture and baseball is the way to do that so I think when you look at the history of baseball you are going to see a lot of Irish names in that time period it's sort of a way to chart American migration in a way boxing you know is sort of the sport that stretching from the Civil War up to now you really see that is is such a fascinating sociological perspective to just see how it goes from Irish Americans to Italian Americans to African Americans to Hispanics, Asian Americans, and sort of this path where you sort of see the migration of America and baseball, I think really does the same thing in those early decades of the sport. Would boxing as a sport be a little different in terms of it being a solo sport? You do it by yourself. You're not on a team. So you would find a lot of Irish Americans gravitating towards somebody like Sullivan because he was Irish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you will find that these um, these boxing matches in the, you know, let's say 1840s up through probably the 1900s, you, you do for the Irish, it is a way to express their identity. And these boxing matches are in a way they're sort of proxy fights. So when the Irish come to the country in the 1840s and they're facing uh, the backlash from the know-nothings and the nativists in the 1840s and 1850s, I mean, it was a huge thing to have an Irishman in the ring against a native-born American and you would have native-born Americans backing the fighter coming in the ring with the stars and stripes on and the Irish fighter coming in, you know, wearing green or maybe they have a, a harp as part of their emblem. And it really is a way to sort of express that identity and give, give uh, communities a rooting interest. And, you know, pretty similar when you get into the time of, the, of Jack Johnson. You know, uh, when African-Americans are uh, being allowed to fight for the heavyweight championship and how it is a representative, it's representative really of a coming of age uh, for a community. So when Sullivan becomes the heavyweight champion of the world and is viewed as the most powerful man in the world, it's a hugely symbolic for a people who a generation ago were coming to the country hungry, poor, sick. And now one of theirs is the symbol of the most powerful man in the world. So it, it, there is that symbolism there that you don't necessarily get from baseball team where I think that's more regional pride, city-based pride. I think that's where you have that assimilation coming in, right? So it's, it is more about your civic pride as opposed to an ethnic pride um, that you would find in the boxing ring. With history being your focus and being a member of Sabre and looking into all of these different historical aspects of the game, what's an underappreciated baseball story that you've found through your research that you wish more people knew? Well, I think one of them is that we have the tendency let's come to African-Americans in baseball in, in that it's 
you know, Jackie Robinson integrating baseball, you know, in what, 1947, right? So I think what gets lost in there is the history of African-Americans playing in the highest levels of baseball back in the 19th century. Um, and there was this rich history of African-American participation that was there before the sport starts to segregate itself out. I think it's it's uh, around the 1880s, I think, is when that happens, that then you have this 60 years where you have such segregation in the sport. So I think what gets lost sometimes is um, knowing that the, the sport wasn't immediately segregated right from the, the get-go. You know, this, this is something that actually is done deliberately in the in the in the 1880s in the in the in the 19th century before you then get into those uh decades where you have the negro leagues and uh and the major leagues and i think there is this growing appreciation that that is out there about the history of, of the negro leagues and certainly i think the celebrations were tempered a little bit this last year of the, of the centennial um uh, just because of everything that's happened in the past year uh but I think that at least is becoming of greater appreciation is just the history that's been out there of the, of the Negro League. So that's been nice to see over the last uh, few years. And a lot of people inside uh, Sabre, I see the research they're just churning out on. It's really uh, led to a greater appreciation of that. And I think one thing that is underappreciated, and you mentioned it a little bit, but it was definitely a conscious decision because there were African-Americans playing in Major League ba or professional baseball anyway in the 19th century, it was a conscious decision by the owners to stop signing black players. They all kind of colluded to not sign black players. And, and I think, again, this is where, you know, baseball can sort of be a window into history and society. So, you know, this is all coming about right after the end of reconstruction and you're seeing a lot of those gains that were made in the aftermath of the civil war for african-americans being rolled back and that's happening not just when it comes to civil rights and in politics it's happening in sports as well so you know it's happening in baseball um another sport where it's happening is in horse racing at that time where uh, a lot of the early jockeys who won the Kentucky Derby, they were African-Americans. Uh, I forget the exact number. I think it's maybe like 10 of the first 12 winners of Kentucky Derby were written by African-American jockeys. And then at that same time, it's, well, the white establishment is not going to make the conscious decision not to have African-American jockeys on their horses any longer. And that flips the whole history of the of the sport for decades and decades to come afterwards. And I know that you're from the Boston area, so I'm just going to make an assumption. Is that assumption correct, that you are a big Red Sox fan? That assumption fan? is correct. That is correct, yep. So when we talk about the history of race in baseball, there actually is, and I grew up a Red Sox fan too, so I'm not putting you down in any way, mm -hmm. but this is something that people like us who grew up Red Sox fans, we have to sort of grapple with that there's not a very good history, particularly with that organization. And now, you know, I became a Red Sox fan in the 80s 
<laughs> I'm sure yep. you came Same. after a lot of these things uh, as well. So it's not like we were there when this was happening, but there is a very uh, checkered history there uh, with the Yawkey family and, and some of those things. So if you could talk about that just a little. Right. So with Pumpsy Green is, I think, 1959, is it, I think? So, I mean, you're talking a good dozen years after Jackie Robinson comes along, and it's a history that's still being reckoned with today. I mean, I think probably a lot of listeners know that uh, Yawkey Way has been changed back to Jersey Street uh, in large account because of Tom Yawkey's uh, record when it comes to bringing in African-American ball players. So it's a history that, you know, has this legacy that's, that's still there and it's still being grappled with today. So, and it's one that, you know, the city also, you know, the city as a whole grapples with that. But I think it's really interesting to sort of see a contrast too, that, you know, you have the Red Sox who are so long at taking um, bring in an African-American. And then on the other hand, you have the Boston Celtics who are the first basketball team starting all black starting five, you know, there that had Bill Russell as their coach, you know, in I think 68, 69 there at the tail end of his career and actually were pretty advanced at, um, at, at bringing in African-Americans. You have Willie O'Ree for the Boston Bruins, who was first, uh, uh, player of African descent to, to play in the NHL. So you do have these other clubs in town that were pioneers and the Red Sox weren't. And, you know, it makes you think that, you know, is it really just because it's what, you know, was it an attitude in the city or is it really just come down to who the owner of the club is at, at that time? You know, and I, I think there's probably um, you could, you could say a little bit of both going on there at at the time, but I think you know, when you compare the Red Sox record to the other teams in in the city, you know, a lot of that then has to go back and point to Yawkey himself. And I think we can talk about the historical importance of that and the societal importance of that. But I think one thing that gets underappreciated is the team was worse because of it. Like his hatred not only hurt society, it not only hurt people. But it hurt his product as well. Yeah, I mean that's that's a good point. I mean, you not much going on in Red Sox history between '46 and '67. So I mean, I mean, it was not a it, it was not a good decision for the team that's being put on the field. So completely, that's a good point that you raised there. So I really appreciate this conversation. It was um, a great time. If you would do me a favor so that everybody knows where to pick up your books. If you could just give yourself that little plug here so everybody knows how to read more about these things. Sure. I mean, so you can go to my website, uh, which is ChristopherKlein.com, and that's K-L-E-I-N, and there you'll find links to all my books, and you can also then click through to purchase it uh, online. Uh, and uh, you can also then find links to my Twitter page and my Facebook page as well. So if you go to ChristopherKlein.com, that's the best way to uh, get a hold of my books and then see uh, the other things I'm writing about. I'm Rick Becker, and this is the Irish Baseball Podcast, which is a production of the Irish American Baseball Society. In addition to this show, the organization has a number of other projects, 
and my colleague Jim Ward is going to discuss one of those right now with some great audio. Take it away, Jim. Thanks, Rick. Make sure to head over to irishbaseball.org to catch the show The Crack and the Bat on Irish Baseball TV. Host Sean Clancy, the founder of the Irish American Baseball Hall of Fame, is joined by some of his incredible connections throughout the game of baseball. This audio clip is from former Major League umpire and crew chief Jim Joyce, who is very impassioned when Sean asks him if he misses the game. I don't miss the game. Uh, I miss baseball, but I don't miss I don't miss the <clears throat> the struggles of baseball because it was just starting at the end of my career. Uh, I, I I call it the struggles, and I mean I don't no disrespect you know with the Irish or, or whatever. Actually, it's the troubles, but this is the struggles. You know, and the thing about it is, is that the game is changing so much, I don't recognize it anymore. I'm having trouble recognizing the game of baseball. Uh, and and if, they, if they keep changing this game, the game was never meant to be perfect, never. No. And they're trying to turn it into a game that is perfect. Now, I know naturally people are listening and, uh, I'm, I'm actually the poster boy for a replay, and we all know why, the Galarraga call and the Galarraga game. But the thing about it is that's what replay was for, was to change something like that. It wasn't meant to change a guy coming off the base by an inch when he's sliding headfirst into second base. Yeah. Or if the string of the glove touches the guy and calling him out. That's not what replay was for. And the replay is not in the hands of the umpires in the first place. People might think that the umpires are in, are, are in charge of replay. Yeah, they're in charge of it at the replay center in New York. And they have to go and talk to the people on the phone on the field. But the umpires don't dictate what's replayed and what's not. It's the managers. Yeah, It's completely out of the hands of the umpires. And I have said that there are times on the field that a crew chief on the field should be able to instigate his own replay if something happens on the field and they say it's not reviewable, bullshit. I think it should be reviewed, no matter what, no matter what. That was former Major League umpire Jim Joyce speaking with Sean Clancy on a recent episode of The Crack and the Bat on Irish Baseball TV. Jim Joyce was one of my favorite umpires, and being an umpire myself, he inspired me in my 35-plus year career going from Little League Baseball to high school baseball and to do some semi-pro as well as high-level softball and uh, baseball down at Cooperstown and around the country and to get to do two uh, regionals for Little League, uh, one in Albany and one in Connecticut. And in all those experiences, the one thing I miss after kind of being away from it because of the pandemic for the last 24-plus months is the kids, the kids and the players and the coaches and that interaction that you have and, you know, the human element of the game that Jim talks about. And it's one of those things when you take that away from the game – it, it, it does change the game for sure. There's no doubt about it. And I kind of relate because the the inclusion of, you know, the strike zone, uh, electronic strike zone and all these things really kind of takes the human element away from the game. And, you know, over 35 years, if I could say I've never missed a call, I'd be lying to you for sure. And I think every umpire would tell you the same thing. And, you know, we kick calls, and we'd like to have something, an element, where we could go back and maybe fix a call. And I, there's a few games I would love to have a call back, uh, maybe to take a look at it. I may have gotten it right, and I may have gotten it wrong, but at least have an idea to go back and take a look at it. And I actually happened to have the chance one time at a game when a parent actually filmed a bang-bang call at first base. And, you know, sure enough, it was really close, but I think I got it right. 
But if I had gotten it wrong, I mean, I could have fixed it. But unfortunately, we didn't have that mechanism to be official. So the call had to stand. But yeah, umpires would love to have that element of the game for sure. And, uh, you know, that's what we'd like to have. But, you know, unfortunately, it is going where it's going and it has changed the game. Moving on to another one of Sean Clancy's interviews. This time he personally talks with Duke Castiglione, who is the lead sports anchor for WCVB-TV, Channel 5 in Boston. So your grandparents in, in Springfield, what was it like being around them? Was there, you know, I mean, did they give you some kind of sense of what it was to be Irish? You know, did, did... Oh, yeah, my grandparents, so my, my um, and I didn't find this out until you and I went to the uh, Irish Embassy when I did a speech at, uh, in, um, in, uh, in New York. Uh, what was our man's name there? He was a uh, really nice, uh, the uh, consulate, uh, very, very nice man. So anyway, he explained it to me, Sean, that um, um, when I, I told him my parents, my mom was from Youngstown, Ohio, and he said, you must be a Mayo man. And I said, yeah, the family's from Mayo. How'd you know that? And he said, well, what happened was, is a lot of people from Mayo went to go work in the steel mills in Northeast Ohio and Kentucky. And I do believe that um, my grandfather's uh, father uh, came in first settled in Kentucky and then made his way up to Northeast Ohio. Uh, I think they went to the coal mines in Kentucky first. And then a lot of the Irish from Mayo, he said, um, went to uh, Northeast Ohio. But, you know, um, that that's right. I mean, and I, I believe some went to Cleveland, but a lot went to Youngstown, Ohio. So there's a lot of male people. So yeah, I did understand. My mom's one of ten, very uh, Irish Catholic religious family, and then um, you know, so yeah, I, I definitely got a sense of what it was to be Irish. And then we moved to Boston. Well, I grew so I spent the, you know the first ten years right outside of Cleveland, and then um, and then I moved to Boston, and I moved particularly to the South Shore, which we call the Irish Riviera here um and um yeah i got a real sense of what it was to be irish especially with an italian last name nobody believed that was irish that was wcvb tv channel 5's lead sports anchor duke castiglione speaking with sean clancy on a recent episode of the crack in the bat on irish baseball tv duke who's actually the son of uh red sox radio uh, network play-by-play voice joe castiglione also comes from a very educational background. Joe actually teaches a class, and uh, Duke, I think, has helped him out a time or two uh, teaching classes. And, of course, some of our friends in New York would know Duke from his work there on television as well. But Duke is, I didn't know that the Castiglione's and that family had relations from County Mayo and uh, from the Midwest and that they came in through the Midwest. Uh, but Mayo is a very prevalent county in the Boston area. Uh, I, growing up in Boston, I knew this from a bunch of my friends and families and two great musicians from Boston, legendary artists, uh, Noel Henry of the Noel Henry Irish Show Band and John Connors of the Irish Express, uh, who, by the way, the two of them got their start in New York as well, uh, performing together when uh, Noel came to this country initially and was going to be a priest and then became a musician. But the two fellows from Mayo got together, and as I say, the rest is history. But Boston has a rich Mayo history, and uh, it was nice to hear about that with Duke and the fact that, you know, you come from an area... And you really don't know you're Irish until you get to Chicago, Boston, New York, 
And I grew up in the Boston area, and I didn't really know how Irish I was living outside of Boston until you go into Boston to some of these rich Boston neighborhoods. Then you find out really how Irish you really are. So I can relate to all that myself, even though I'm first-generation Irish myself from County Roscommon with my dad. Both of those audio cuts were from the show The Crack in the Bat on Irish Baseball TV. To see the full interviews, log on to irishbaseball.org, the home of the Irish American Baseball Society. While there, check out the history of Irish baseball and famous Irish and Irish Americans in the game of baseball. For now, I'm Jim Ward. Let's turn it back over to my broadcast partner, Rick Becker, here on the Irish Baseball Podcast. Thanks, Jim, for author Christopher Klein, Irish American Baseball Hall of Fame founder Sean Clancy, former Major League umpire Jim Joyce, WCVB Channel 5 lead sports anchor Duke Castiglione, and my colleague Jim Ward. I'm Rick Becker, and this has been Episode 17 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast. The Irish Baseball Podcast is a production of the Irish American Baseball Society. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org and connect with us on social media. And remember, there's no place like home.